As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Michael Wilson joins us now. He's chief U.S. equity strategist at, uh, and CIO at Morgan Stanley. Of course, many of you on Global Wall Street hang on every word if you agree or disagree. Mike, I see a massive polarity in the equity markets right now. It's a select group of haves and everybody else dragging along looking for the next narrative. Am I right on that polarity? Yeah, that's right, uh, Tom. I mean, you know, you guys were talking about the bond market's volatility here recently. We've been focused on that, too. We think that, you know, the bond market is sort of jumping ahead of what the Fed is saying. And that's the first time we've really seen that uh, in quite a while, meaning that the bond market is somewhat, you know, dismissing the Fed's dot plot, which I find interesting because I think the equity market may start to do that, too. And it's already happening under the surface, as you alluded to, meaning small cap stocks and anything that's sort of viewed as lower quality or hat will have right. challenges with needs capital availability is, is being punished. And then we're left with, the, you know, 20 stocks kind of carrying the day. I mean, the 20 stocks carrying the day screams the roll up I've been talking about for six, seven, eight months with the interest rate regime that you studied at Michigan a few years uh, back. With that said, is it a return to what you and I knew years ago? Or is this a new higher interest rate regime for the stock market? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think what it, what, it, what it really is, is it's just a much less predictable world. And this has been our theme for the last couple of years, is that we're entering a period of higher economic volatility, right? The last 20 years has been a world of repression where, you know, all of these metrics were somewhat predictable. And that's, you know, that's for companies, that's for the Fed itself, that's for investors, and now we're entering a world where it's just not as predictable. Um, and that means higher risk premiums, whether we're talking about credit, whether we're talking about term premium in the bond market, uh, or we're talking about equity risk premium. In our view, you know, I think people are operating as if we're going to go back to that predictable world. And that's, I think, misplaced. A lot of people have been reading your prognostications of lower earning multiples for week after week after week, the latest uh, from you. Given the events of the past few weeks, we think guidance is looking more and more unrealistic and equity markets are at greater risk of pricing in much lower estimates ahead of any hard data changes. Mike, given that you've been saying this for a while and given the fact that the, we have continued to see resilience in equities that refuse to go down, how do you push back and say, you guys are going to wake up? It might not be yet, even if we get disappointed earnings, but you will. Well, look, we try to navigate that inside the equity market, right? So, I mean, last year we, we saw a pretty big degradation in, in multiples, but as we pointed out again today, all that was due to higher interest rates. None of it was due to higher risk premium, which is the part of the multiple that is, you know, pricing in what growth is going to be. 
Now, I would push back on the pushback, which is that the market is starting to revalue or devalue what I would say the companies that are most uh, at risk of missing estimates. As I mentioned earlier, you know, lower quality uh, companies, uh, more cyclical companies, uh, smaller cap companies that are going to have a hard time with you know, what's going on in the regional banking system. Um, so it is happening. It's just, you know, it takes a little bit longer and everybody, you know, kind of focuses on the S&P 500 or maybe NASDAQ 100 as these kind of, you know, bastions of safety. And that's true until it's not. Well, okay. So let's talk about the repricing. Last year, we were talking about big tech. And this year, the repricing has been in the opposite direction. I'm looking right now at Meta. Facebook shares up more than 71% so far year to date. Apple shares up more than 20%. I mean, basically, pick your pick your poison and it's up dramatically. How do you push back against this, against the recovery and some of the names that supposedly were going to come under pressure in a higher rate world? Well, I think you said it right. I mean, these companies took their punishment last year because they were, you know, probably the tip of the spear in terms of, you know, valuations out of bounds. So when, when rates went up, they, they took it first. And you could argue that a lot of those uh, groups or, you know, stocks and sectors that they're in are in a recession already, right? They're, that's the area we are seeing layoffs. That's the area we are seeing retrenchment on costs. And, and I, think the, I think the debate now, Lisa, is have those companies cut costs and gotten in front of it enough where they can now see earnings growth again? Um, I think there's some appetite for that view. Uh, that's not our view. Our view is that uh, there's going to be probably be more cost cutting in that space because the malinvestment was just so egregious and the over-earning was even worse. So I think it's just going to be kind of a drip, drip, drip. Um, you know, my, my suspicion is you know, markets tend to figure this out ahead of the actual numbers coming down. And because the bond market just repriced itself overnight, we think that risk for the equity market is elevated now more than it's been for the last six or 12 months. Mike, you've been labeled a bear, and I know what it is to be labeled a bear, and then people think that everything oh, you say is go. bearish no matter what. I'm just saying, even when potentially you do get constructive, are there any areas that you think have sufficiently repriced where you're starting to see opportunity? Well, look, I mean, financials have started to reprice in a meaningful way. You know, not all of these companies are going to have problems, uh, you know, right. that we're seeing in some of these. So, yeah, I think it's happening. I mean, the other thing I would just point out is that, you know, financials tend to lead uh, the overall market, but that's one area for sure. Um, some of the retail, you know, some of the consumer areas have repriced. They've been repricing for years. You know, we just added a name to our fresh money buy list today as a retailer. So, you know, I think these there are definitely areas. I mean, markets go through these periods with, I call it a rolling bear market, right. rolling recession. We've, we've kind of, I think, uh, came out with that view a few years ago. Now people have used it. But you know, that's the way it works. And, and, and yeah, we're looking for opportunities now at the stock level, but at the index level, it just does not look attractive to us. Mike Wilson, the thing that's different this time around is the pile of money in what's called private equity, private markets. It, can they be a catalyst for a trade? Not like milking years ago, but can they be a catalyst for a roll up of all these troubled companies? Well, look, I mean, first of all, I don't think there's that many you know, troubled companies. I think we have a situation where valuations are out of bounds and we need to correct that. Um, I absolutely think there's tons of cash out there where there's private or public money, you know, pu public money, that meaning asset owners that can come in at the right price and it will. So whatever we're going to get here in the next three to six months in terms of finally resetting the valuation appropriately, getting estimates down, I don't think we're going to stay at very, very low price levels for a very long time. I, we're not in the camp that we're in a secular structural bear market. This is a cyclical bear market. It has some, some completion to it. And your your question is really around, is there enough cash and 
uh, investable funds out there to right. kind of, you know, stabilize things? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Okay, Mike Wilson, thank you for the brief this morning. Hugely valuable. He is, of course, with Morgan Stanley. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Lisa Hornby, head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income at Schroeder's, joining us now. Lisa, I want to get your sense of what's changed. Have we gotten enough stability in the lack of news over the weekend to go risk on today? I think possibly temporarily. I think there's a bit of a sigh of relief that, you know, Deutsche Bank, amongst others, are still standing uh, this Monday morning. Um, I don't think we're quite out of the woods yet. You know, I guess part of it is there's a bit of a sentiment uh, swing. Everybody has gotten super bearish and, you know, rates rallied really, really aggressively and everything seems to be a little bit calmer right now. So there's probably a bit of a technical now pointing towards the positive direction. That being said, I mean, our position has always been that when the Fed tightens aggressively, it exposes the excess leverage, the excess risk in the system, and that is going to cause things to break. And we've, we've certainly had an element of that. It feels like people people are having sort of this polar experience. It's either a bipolar experience where it's either the banks are collapsing, we're all going straight back to zero and everyone's going to just basically hide under their mattresses or else the banks are going to be fine and then the Fed eases and then everything's also going to be amazing. It seems like both narratives are kind of coming to a fore right now at a time when by necessity, the Fed is going to tighten credit conditions in a way that will have to hurt. So at what point have we priced that into the credit spreads? It's still are below traditional recessionary levels. I think the point you make is just highlights how much uncertainty there is in the market and how much potential volatility there is to come. I mean, we can look at what's discounted for the end of the year in terms of Fed rate hikes and say the market's pricing in, a, give or take 100 basis points, excuse me, of rate cuts by the end of the year. Or we could say, well, that's actually 50% of the market that thinks there's 200 basis points of rate cuts and the rest who think things are unchanged. You know, there's a huge a huge gap, a huge spread in, in the views out there. And I think ultimately what that means is you need to be compensated more to take risk. You need right. more risk premium embedded in markets, not less. Lisa, in CFA level one, there's a point where you passed and I didn't accounting asset liability of how bonds are accounted for. And the heart of the matter to me and the magnitude of the rate move we've had is held to maturity accounting. Do you at Schroeder's have any transparency or vision of the true state of held to maturity debt in this crisis, or is it unknown on a Monday? Well, you're asking me to draw back on a few years here at CFA Level 1, but you know, our, the big banks certainly are are regulated to a different 
degree than some of the smaller regionals that have become known in the headlines more recently. And, and certainly the size of those books were larger in our view than those of the major, the, the, GCIB, the US GCIBs and even some of the larger US regionals. So there's, there's a threshold um, for, for when those books need to actually be marked to market and when they don't, and what needs to be reported in terms of unrealized losses. So, you know, I guess the, the bottom line for us is you have to know what you own. And you have to know what is on those mm-hmm. on the books of those types of issuers, and this is where credit analysts really um, come into the come into the fore because this is the type of environment where things <laughs> like that are exposed, and we've certainly seen that over the last three weeks. I looked, Lisa, at the opportunity for issuance here. We saw a ginormous healthcare issuance last week. Do you and Schroeder think we'll see a lot of issuance out there? I mean, there's certainly the last couple of weeks, there's been almost there's been a very, very light. Um, so we do think that there's a lot of pent up issuance waiting to come. Markets stay like this. I think we'll see a, a good deal of issuance. It's interesting. Some of that, the healthcare issues that you mentioned actually have performed quite well, despite all of the volatility. So it does show that there's still a bid for for defensive um, healthcare pharma type names. I think that that does tell you something about how the market's going to respond to future issuance as well. Which, lo- which dislocation over the past couple of weeks were you taking advantage of, Lisa? And I know that you think that perhaps you need to have greater risk premia, but are there any areas where there's enough baked in that you think this is an attractive moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were fairly defensive coming into this. And so there has been opportunity in our view in agency mortgages. There's some opportunity. And I think in the banking sector, you know, some of the higher rated senior U.S. GSIBs, I think that we've seen some opportunity there over the last couple of weeks, uh, particularly in the more fraught moments. Uh, some of the higher quality industrials, the more defensive names, as I as I alluded to with healthcare, there's, you know, the whole market has cheapened. The whole market isn't worse, <clears throat> worth less. There's certainly uh, diamonds in the rough, if you will, and so mm-hmm. it's about spotting those. For in our view, right now, you still want to err on the more defensive side. Generally speaking, uh, we still think there's more volatility to come in, in probably in credit spreads. You know, we might be in for a little bit of a tactical bounce, as we said here. More market feels a little bit firmer today, um, and certainly people have gotten offsides <clears throat> and whipsawed with these moves. But there's absolutely opportunity emerging. Lisa Hornby, thank you so much. Now we go to the Atlantic, to the northern climes of Maine. And Gerard Cassidy, he's been such an advantage to us with RBC Capital Markets on the banks. Is it all quiet on the Cassidy front today, Gerard? I mean, are we beyond the crisis? I don't buy it for a minute. Uh, Tom, I think the quiet, the crisis has really quieted down. And I think as the deposit flight has pretty much, I think we're going to find by the end of this week, uh, slow down to a trickle. You know, the numbers came out, as you probably saw late last week, um, and the deposit outflow from the smaller banks um, was not that material. It was less than 2%. Um, it was far less than I think some of the um, folks were thinking. Uh, and therefore, it, it is calming down. And you saw, of course, that Silicon Valley, um, the FDIC was able to sell that to, over the weekend to First Citizens. So both of the failed banks have now been sold to private banks or banks that are publicly traded. So we're moving in the right direction. Is it the all clear signal, Tom? Probably not, but we're getting darn close. Do you think, Gerard, that the calls for deposit insurance on a more generalized scale were overblown over the past few weeks, that the need for that kind of backstop and certainty was overstated? Lisa, thank you for saying that. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think what people are finding out is that most 
depositors have confidence in their banks. And that being said, when you break down the size of our banks, less than 100 million in assets or less than 10 billion in assets, the majority of those deposits in those banks are already insured by the government because they're less than $250,000. That doesn't mean they may not look at a revision of lifting up the deposit insurance levels at some point, but I think it was, to your point, overblown and overhyped. And that was part of this whole problem was, unfortunately, it spread like wildfire on social media. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that has to be addressed as we go forward. So there's a conflation here. On one hand, you have the potential for bank runs, right? And that was something that really spurred the immediate kind of concern. But then there's this question of just deposit flight, that a lot of people are withdrawing their money from banking accounts just generally in order to go into money market funds and other higher interest paying uh, rates. And this is the issue because you're seeing small banks, according to the data, lose deposits at a much faster clip than larger banks. So at what point is that the real problem? It's a profitability problem and it's a com competition problem as well as a lending one. I, I would say that the mix is changing to your point. Uh, when you look at the uh, data from the uh, Federal Reserve, you'll notice that something what they refer to as other deposits, which are generally the non-interest bearing or low interest bearing deposits, have fallen more aggressively, both for the large banks and small banks, since rates have started to go higher. What they've replaced that with, though, is time deposits. So CDs that you know Tom might remember back in the 80s, no, no, when you no, could get I, a I, no. <laughs> you could get a CD for you know 13 <laughs> percent for 12 months. Um, the, those those types of instruments are coming back. And believe it or not, Lisa, back in the 1980s, 50 percent of bank funding was with CDs. As of the fourth quarter, it was less than 10 percent. Yeah. So I, the mix is changing. What I remember about the 1980s. Gerard Cassidy is you had a haircut and a beard like Bob Seeger. That's what I really I remember there. You know, the, the, the smartest tweet this weekend was from the giant of Chicago, Jim Bianco, where he said, look, it's a 5% world. Everybody get over it. How does the profitability of, of the RBC capital market stocks you follow, how does the profitability change in Bianco's 5% world? Tom, it really comes down to, once again, the mix of deposits. And for the banks who've been working very hard and diligently, you know, for the last 20 years and growing those cheap core consumer deposits, the 5% world is very profitable. Uh, what investors, they know now, but six right. months ago, People weren't looking at the right side of a bank's balance sheet. That that was 15 years ago when rates were higher. But when you have checking account deposits of consumers and they're basically the consumer's operating account, banks don't need to pay any interest <laughs> on it because the benefits right. they're giving to the consumer are obviously the ease of use and as well as making payments, et cetera. Well, so the point is in a 5% world, if you have the right deposit mix, like a Brian Mornington over at Bank America, this is very profitable for a company okay, like that. Let's get a window here into the world, a, cut, a cutthroat world of securities analysis and banking. Keith Horowitz at Citigroup, Gerard. I mean, you know Keith's work suspect. Oh, we yeah. all know that. He goes out and he puts a buy today on M&T of Buffalo, the best-run bank uh, in America. I'm not editorializing there. Gerard, you've got a moonshot on MTB. What will be the catalyst for Horowitz's strong buy and your strong buy on MTB to, to work out? How do you get the moonshot on a Buffalo bank? 
Exactly for that reason, Tom. You want the slow growth, steady eddies that are that are funded by these cheap core deposits. MNT is probably has one of the best deposit bases. They have the grandma and grandpa deposit up in Watertown, New York, that has five thousand dollars in it. That money is not moving to Marcus, and as a result, they don't need to pay up for it. But second, you also have a company that never extended its duration like its peers in its securities portfolio, and therefore they're earning far more in that portfolio. And then third, you might remember, Tom, they closed on the people's uh, acquisition just over a year ago, and the cost savings from that acquisition will also drive earnings. So they are three drivers. And then lastly, they have one of the few banks that has excess capital. They've been a great a steward of shareholders' uh, um, capital, and they're going to return the well, excess capital through buybacks. Gerard, we, we got to leave it there. Hugely beneficial. Lisa's right now to buy ticket on Fortress Wilmers right now. Gerard Cassidy with RBC Capital Marks. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Right now joining us, Torsten Slock. Chief Economist, Apollo Global Management. I really want to emphasize that uh, Torsten, with his work at Deutsche Bank over the years and, of course, at OECD in Paris, gives a global view to the U.S. trauma right now. You are known for one paragraph, one chart. What's the one paragraph, the one chart that matters for Tuesday morning? Well, what matters the most really at the moment is, as Lisa was just saying, the uncertainty about what is the behavioral reaction going to be in the regional banks and the banking sector more broadly as a result of what we're seeing at the moment. <clears throat> because everything we're seeing on our Bloomberg screens tells you that, oh, maybe this is just a modest tightening in financial conditions. Maybe the OIS bank funding cost spread is out about 40, 50 basis points. But what we don't know is the second order effect, namely what is the behavioral change going to be in terms of lending standards? Is it going to be harder to get a loan to buy a a car, to buy a house, to buy commercial real estate, to buy uh, anything for consumers and for corporates. And as a result of that, it is really still a bit unknown exactly how deep this is going to be. Okay, well, okay I, I get the idea there's unknowns here, but to me, what we may end up with is not only, maybe not a, a worry about concentration of banking, but you know what, we're going to clear the market, remove the people that couldn't make it from zero to 5% and will be stronger after the fact. Is that the Apollo view? No, so the, of course, outlook here is mainly uh, driven by the uncertainty about what is the response going to be in terms of how much tighter lending conditions will be. So if you look at the quantitative response in terms of pricing, I can see that on my Bloomberg screen, and that clearly shows that financial conditions are tighter and borrowing costs and funding costs for banks are higher. But if you then start to do small regressions and think about, well, what does the 
uh, tightening in lending standards that we saw in 2020, which is where the Frau OES spread is, if that corresponds to what we're seeing today, then you might have more coming in terms of effectively a higher Fed funds rate relative to what we have seen in the data on you my see, screen. See, he's the only guy I know that actually understands the BTMM screen. I mean, that's what he's talking <laughs> there with F-R-A-O-I-S, the, the SOFR, S-O-F-R, which well, Iris says is the new LIBOR. It's all Greek to me, but there it is. This is the issue, though, for central bankers. They don't know how much additional tightening is being sort of implied into the market through a tightening in lending standards. And so if they're in the dark as well, if they don't have a clear sense of this and the actual data that we're getting keeps on being strong, what's to stop them from continuing to hike in spite of all of the naysayers in the market that's screaming for rate cuts. You're absolutely right. I mean, the whole situation here is a function of data dependency. The data dependency, if you say, I only look at the incoming data, then you are by definition backward looking. So if, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty about what's coming in the future, and you just don't know how to quantify that, and no one knows that at this point, we all have to guess what are the implications of this, then the risks are more tilted to the downside. But what the Fed and the ECB and all central banks around the world are now waiting for is is this going to slow down the data? Are jobless claims going to go up every Thursday for the coming weeks? Will we also see non-farm payrolls begin to slow down? We've already seen durable goods and CapEx begin to slow down, but the bottom line is that we already had a slowdown coming because of the lack of effects of Fed hikes, and now we're adding onto that a banking crisis, and that, of course, increases the risks that the slowdown is going to be faster. Is it fair to call what we have experienced a banking crisis? And this is really a question that people are trying to really wrestle with question. at a time when really we seem question. to see stability. And there are certain specific banks that had specific risks that blew up. And now we see ongoing sense of resilience. Is it fair to call it a banking crisis? It's going to materially tighten lending conditions. Well, it's fair in the sense that we have seen bank runs. And a bank run is normally the number one characteristic of a banking crisis. But what is very unusual is that this banking crisis is not like normal banking crisis. A normal banking crisis is because of credit losses on the illiquid part of banks' books. Now we're actually seeing losses not on the credit side, but on the most liquid side of banks' books, namely in treasuries. So in that sense, we have basically never before had a banking crisis in a strong economy, and that's really unusual. So what's the distinction between a, a liquidity crisis, where it's just deposits being withdrawn, and a credit crisis? When does a liquidity crisis become a credit crisis? So that's exactly why what matters now is how are the banks going to respond to this liquidity crisis? Are they going to say, it doesn't matter, we're just going to lend more? Or are the three headwinds they're facing from higher funding costs, also more regulatory scrutiny, and also ultimately mm -hmm. a look at assets in a different way, is that going to make them hold back? And if they do begin to hold back, the risk, of course, is that this could magnify the slowdown that is already. Let's not forget, we were even debating a few months ago, oh, this will be a hard landing, even without right. a banking situation. Uh, it's completely inappropriate for me to ask you about Deutsche Bank, but there I was in Davos standing with you and Mr. Saving long ago and far away as he was coming in to sell the bank. Away from Deutsche Bank, explain to our American audience why European financial banking dynamics are so different and original from the American model. Well, there are a lot of academic studies that show you that the deposit beta, in other words, how sensitive deposits are to interest rates, has tended to be lower in Europe. So that means also, therefore, that the propensity to move money quickly in and out of your accounts, like we're seeing in the weekly data from the Fed last Friday in the U.S., where money was moved mm -hmm. from small banks, about 120 billion outflow to 60 billion <coughs> inflows to large banks, that has basically 
a more significant, more pronounced effect right. in the U.S. relative to what we see in Europe. Over the weekend, the Financial Times did a full treatment of the Swiss culture and their banking. And again, it was 78% or whatever of the Swiss people are dead set against this mating of these two banks. Not on those two banks, but do the people of Europe have a voice in this? Or is it the elites, the elites above high that get to fix EU banking? Well, one very important difference between the U.S. and the European banking sector is that the European banking sector is much more dominant. In other words, we have a bank-driven financial Robin system. Robin Brooks had that chart and, out last night. Stunning. And, and Lisa, stunning. It's, the it's the first thing I worked with. I joined with Robin at the IMF in the early 1990s. But the conclusion is that it is very important conclusion that U.S. has a market-based financial system. Europe has a bank-based financial system. And when you have a more bank-based financial system, the banks just play a more important role. And whereas in the U.S., remember in the U.S., the vast majority of credit in the U.S. to the private sector comes from outside the banks. And that's very important because that, of course, means that the markets play a much more significant role. The U.S. financial system is much more diversified. If you want financing as a company, you could basically go to many more sources in the U.S. than you can in Europe. So there are two different things here. There's less deposit beta in Europe than there is in the U.S., but there are, is a greater dependency on banks so that it's more susceptible. It's an economy that's more susceptible to issues in the banking system. So if there is no issue in the banking system, if Credit Suisse was a troubled bank that had been troubled for a long time that came to a head on a, a number of different issues, then is lending going to remain stronger and thus foster a stronger economy in Europe than the U.S., which is more susceptible to market pricing that's moving quick? Well, it, it, that's correct. But the issue here is also what is the behavioral change going to be not only in U.S. regional banks, but in banks globally. And that's why if you do have a behavioral change where banks globally do begin to pull a bit back, then in a more bank-based economy, you would expect a more negative effect simply because the banks are playing a bigger <coughs> role. That's why the no. diversification of the U.S. financial system that you have so many more different places to go. If we were a company, we wanted to forget financing, we could go to a bank. If that said no, well, then we could go to bond markets, to venture capital, to private capital, to private credit, to private equity. There's so yeah. many more places to raise funds in U.S. financial markets, which is really the beauty of U.S. capital markets, yeah. that they are so much more diversified and therefore more able to provide the financing. It is very important at Bloomberg Surveillance, it's been our tradition for decades, that we try to capture the zeitgeist among the adults in the room. This weekend, Jason Furman, who has to speak to Act 10 in the room at Harvard, said, shut up and read it. And basically, shut up and read it is the new, to quote Furman, Professor Furman, phenomenal and hard-hitting essay by Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute. Dr. Posen is definitive on German culture. Dr. Posen is definitive of synthesizing together American policy and our economics. Uh, Adam Posen, I, I want to begin, first of all, with buried in your wonderful paragraph-by-paragraph -paragraph article, is that Trump-Biden trade policy gives us the risk of losing American jobs. I thought we were gaining jobs by Intel factories from sea to shining sea. Afraid not, Tom. Uh, initially, you might gain a few. Thank you so much for the intro and for having me today on surveillance. The issue is, first, we've only got a finite number of skilled workers, people from these companies, Intel, Qualcomm, TSMC, Tokyo Electron. They don't have the American workers here who can do the job. And if they do, they have to hire them away from someplace else. It's not like skilled engineers are unemployed in the U.S. right now. We need immigration to get that up. 
Second, if you put all this stuff and you force it to be built here at higher expense, then what you get is less competitiveness for the rest of the country. They're going to be paying more for semiconductors. They're going to be paying more for equipment. And that's fine if you think it serves some goal, but it's certainly going right. to hurt jobs. And third, you're never going to export any of this because what you're doing is you're bringing stuff home, so to speak, in order to make it uncompetitive. We've sort of done this with turning NAFTA into USMCA. We've increased the rules of origin, meaning more domestic content, and as a result, fewer exports. So on net, this is not a jobs creation program. Someone who was definitive on this and the strength of the Peterson Institute was William Klein. All of our debate, including GOP and Democrats, is simplistic bilateral tension. And William Klein had the courage to say, you've got to think multilateral and differential bilateral of Singapore and China, Singapore and Mexico, Mexico and South Korea. How naive are we in a simplistic China-U.S. study? Well, Bill is right, and I'm trying to make the same kind of case that there's what economists call general equilibrium, but in international relations, that the U.S. cannot simply say, we do this, you have to play along, and no one's going to react. Other countries, you mentioned Singapore, South Korea, Mexico, Australia, India, they have agency. They do not just have to passively deal with whatever yeah. the U.S. does. And if the U.S. decides to play hardball, to make them play along, then we become a police force and make enemies. So it's not a viable strategy. I wouldn't describe it to naivete. I describe it to overconfidence and ideological blinders. At a gunpoint years ago, I was forced to read Ricardo 1817 cover to cover. And to be honest, folks, David Ricardo, who is so much of this based off of in 1817, you know, it's a tough read. It's 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 uh, there, there's some distance to it centuries ago. Adam Posen, our trade policy is based from a distance on maybe Bretton Woods, maybe the middle 20th century. Do we need a new trade policy for a more open technological world? We need a new trade policy in the U.S. because we haven't been open. We, the rest of the world's continued to open up, continue to do more trade, more investment. And as I argued in a foreign affairs piece a couple of years ago, the U.S. has been deglobalizing basically since NAFTA, certainly since 2000. And so all this blaming everything on the China shock doesn't make any sense because every other country was exposed to the China shock and they continued to grow or they had the same decline in manufacturing jobs. You mentioned Germany. We did a look at North Rhine-Westphalen, the Ohio of Germany, and compared it directly with Ohio. They lost more manufacturing jobs than we did, despite their trade surplus, despite all these things that the Americans claim the Germans did. And so... Our trade policy isn't the problem. It's our mm -hmm. politics that is the problem that refuses to recognize that America can't have everything it wants and that some people in rural manufacturing jobs have to adjust like the people who've been in services in cities have adjusted through the years. Can there be a middle ground in Washington on trade or do we just need to live to the polarity that we've seen for the last eight, nine, ten years? 
I'm not sure it's, this is one of the few issues, Tom, where I don't think it's an issue of polarity. I think it's large part of the Democratic Party, Excuse large me, yes. part of the Republican yeah. Party have come together. My error. It's, it's, yeah. No, no, it's fine. But I mean, it's just to say the extremism <clears throat> is the majority position. And just as on other issues, like communism in the 50s at home, like environmental issues before the 70s, like civil rights, I don't mean to say this is on a par with those, but just to say, Congress and the right. popular views sometimes are wrong. We have to confront that these views, even if popular and widespread, are wrong. Adam, you lead with America's zero-sum economics. I mean, this is like Chad Jones out on the West Coast talking to a solo 101. I mean, how do we get away from what we all intuitively understand is not a good thing, zero-sum economics? How do we get back to something constructive off of solo 1957? Great question. I think there's two tracks. One is we have to be more aggressive about confronting China and others in the diplomatic and military space. This whole part of the whole trade issue is people in foreign policy security not wanting to do the dangerous and hard work on the security side and hoping they can sub economics for it, but it doesn't work. It's not that economics is more important, it's it just doesn't work. So beef up the security side, pick a few technologies, really cram on that. The second side, as you said, is Solo-esque or Robert Gordon or anything like that. Huge public investment, yes, not industrial policy to exclude other countries, not industrial policy to maximize production at home, but made by America instead of made in America. Money towards R&D, money towards education, money towards supporting standards that let us get innovation from the free world. Those are the two tracks I would go on for made by America instead of made in America. Yeah. Adam Posen, uh, wonderful to get started here on our IMF coverage here. And, of course, this article, folks, I really can't say enough about. Don't listen to me. Listen to Professor Furman up at uh, Harvard. America's zero-sum economics doesn't add up. It is without question the read of the weekend from Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.